Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 3. I'm excited to return to Ephesians this morning. Uh, we, we were in, in Ephesians last in October, and in the new year we're going to return to Ephesians. And uh, we're going to be over in chapter 4 today for our primary text, but I want to begin over in Ephesians chapter 1, and the reason why is because so much of what Paul says in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 is built on the doctrine and theology he teaches us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And there's some important theology in chapter 1 I want to remind you of that sets the stage for what we're going to study today, and that theology is in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Follow along with me while I read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Paul says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Uh, the sentence I want to draw your attention to there is uh, at the end of verse 4. Speaking of God the Father, Paul says, in love, motivated by His love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. So, in other words, if you have been reconciled to God this morning through Jesus, you have become a beloved son or daughter of God. That means that you have a privileged position. Uh, God loves you. He's adopted you into His family. Uh, you enjoy a spirit, uh, spiritually privileged position, um, and you now have a high calling in life as a member of God's family. And that leads to this question, how do you live in a way that uh, is worthy of your new position in God's family? How do you live in such a way uh, that you help the family name, right? You live up to the family name. There have always been people who've had high callings in life, but sadly haven't lived up to them. Uh, at times, Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, didn't always live up to his high calling or to the great nation that he represented in his public comments. For instance, once he was asked to speak at the opening of a gorgeous new city hall in Vancouver, and he said, I declare this thing open, whatever it is. Uh, on another occasion, to an aboriginal tribe, he said to the chief of the tribe, so are you chaps still throwing spears at other tribes? Perhaps his worst moment, though, came uh, when Brit Britain was suffering a terrible time of economic hardship. There was high unemployment. I believe the year was uh, 1981 was the context, and someone asked him uh, to give a, a comment on the high unemployment, and this was his response. You know, a few years ago, everybody was saying, we must have more leisure. Everybody is working too much. Now that everybody's got more leisure, they're complaining that they're unemployed. People just don't seem to be able to make up their minds what they want, do they? Now, though we're Americans, we cringe at those statements from Prince Philip because we know that they're not appropriate for a man in his position as a figurehead representing his nation to be making. And as Christians, we've been given a high position spiritually, and it should be our desire to try to live up to uh, our privileged position. It should be our goal to try to bring honor 
to the family name. But how do we do that? What would it look like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our high calling? Well, Paul is going to answer that question today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Turn over to Ephesians 4, and let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Uh, This is going to be our primary text we study today. Follow along with me while I read it. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all gentleness and humility, with patience, uh, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, You are the one who inspired Paul to pen these words for the Ephesians and for us. We want to do all that you've called us here to do. We want to live in a manner worthy of the high calling you've called us to. So please be our teacher now in a special way. Please instruct us what it means to live up to this high position we have as adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we can begin to answer the question of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we have to give the words of the Apostle Paul here their due. He does answer that question. He's building up to answering that question. But his answer comes in the middle of a logical flow of thought, and we have to pay attention to that. First of all, Paul begins verse 1 with the word, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you're supposed to ask what it's there for. Uh, Therefore is a connecting word. It connects what came before with what the apostle is about to say. And it alerts us to the fact that there is a logical flow of argumentation that Paul's making, so we can't just jump into the middle of that argument and fully appreciate what he's communicating. We need to go back and understand what he says in its context. Uh, And one of the important things you find if you read past chapter 4, verse 1, and you keep going into the paragraphs that follow, you find something very interesting about this particular word, therefore. This, therefore, isn't just connecting what Paul is saying to the previous paragraph. It's connecting everything Paul has said in chapters 1 through 3 with everything he's about to say in chapters 4 through 6. You see, Ephesians is a two-part letter. Chapters 1 through 3 are about God's eternal plan of redemption. Chapters 4 through 6 are about how that relates to your life. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with indicative verbs uh, of fact about who God is and what He's doing in the world and who you are in relationship to that. But chapters 4 through 6 are filled with uh, imperative verbs of command about how we should live in response to what God is doing in the world. Chapters 4 through 6 contain plenty of instruction for how to live. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with rich theology. Uh, Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with timely counsel. Chapters 1 through 3 are God's eternal plan explained. 4 through 6 is God's eternal plan applied to your life in the here and now, which leads to an important application. Uh, there's something to be learned from the big picture of how Paul has arranged this letter. He starts with doctrine first and then moves to practice. Why? Because good practice is always built on the solid foundation of good doctrine. It's like building a house. Uh, If all you want to do, and and I confess, I'm I'm like this. This is a problem, man. If all you want to do is jump to the practical how-to's 
of, of relational advice and how to have a better marriage and how to please God as a parent, but you skip the doctrinal foundation upon which all those commands and instructions are built, then your house will eventually crumble. Uh, the biblical order is good doctrine first, then practice. Uh, this is a reminder. Uh, I want to remind you, and we looked at this last year. In fact, we spent a lot of 2023 looking at the good theology of chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, and we're going to launch into chapters 4 through 6 today. And this is a good reminder for us that good practice can only be built on the solid foundation of good doctrine. However, now that I've emphasized that and reminded you of that, we need to add this as our thought for the new year uh, to that, and, and this is our new thought. Understanding right doctrine is an excellent start, but right doctrine is empty without good practice. Let me say that again in a shorthand way. Right doctrine is empty without good practice. Notice that Paul doesn't just give us good doctrine and then at the end of chapter 3, greet a few people by name and then end the letter with a benediction. He moves on to tell us practically, if, if you're going to embrace everything I've just said, here's what it looks like to live it out. God expects us to act on what we know. The apostle is trying to give instruction to help us live out the rich theology that we would say we believe and have embraced from chapters 1 through 3. And uh, the Lord Jesus, if you remember during His public ministry, He had the same emphasis with His disciples. For example, at the Last Supper, what did He say to His disciples? He didn't say, blessed are you if you know these things. He said, blessed are you if you do them, right? We're actually meant to live out good theology. And so, as we think about this word, therefore, uh, we do need to say that it's not just connecting us to the previous paragraph, it's connecting us to everything in chapters 1 through 3, and it's actually connecting us with everything that's going to follow in chapters 4 through 6. Ephesians 4.1, then, is actually a topic sentence, and not just a topic sentence for the paragraph that follows, a topic sentence for everything the next three chapters holds for us. And since this topic sentence uh, introduces us to three whole chapters, I think it's worth slowing down to make sure we really understand what the topic sentence is communicating. Notice, first of all, that Paul begins, uh, and he uses the word walk here. The idea of walking in the Old Testament was a metaphor for our conduct. And what the apostles of the New Testament do is they pick up that Old Testament metaphor and they use it throughout the New Testament to talk about our manner of life, how we conduct ourselves. And I like that because walking actually implies a number of things. If you take the, the physical idea of walking down a path, going on a journey, it implies a number of things spiritually. First of all, walking implies a destination. Uh, in our own day, because we use vehicles or, or e even if we're in the town, bikes or public transportation, we don't tend to, we tend to walk and hike for fun, I think a little bit more than ancient people did. Uh, but when ancient people walked, they had a destination. It was the primary mode of transportation. They were going somewhere. And the same is true in the Christian life. We're not just on a stroll as we follow Jesus. We have a destination we're aiming for, and that destination is having the same character as our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming Christ-like in our moral character. Uh, walking also implies a path and indeed, the New Testament communicates a certain pathway of living that leads to righteousness. 
Uh, walking also implies the idea of personal action. You have to put one step in front of the other. Uh, walking down a path isn't something that happens passively to you, right? It's something that it's something you do. The Holy Spirit is there to be your comforter, to guide you. The Holy Spirit even gives you strength, but the Holy Spirit won't obey the commands for you. You have to put one step in front of the other on the path. And walking also implies, I think, the idea of making steady progress. The Christian life, it is instructive that they didn't choose the idea of jogging or sprinting for the Christian life, right? The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not even a marathon where we try to keep up a good pace jogging. It's portrayed in the New Testament as a long walk of obedience uh, in the right direction. Uh, a walk that is seemingly slow at times, but is making steady progress in learning to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learning to more consistently love our neighbors as we already love ourselves. And so, Paul uses the word walk here to communicate the way that we go about living our lives, our manner of living, how we conduct ourselves. And then notice verse 1 as well. He uses the word worthy. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, the Greek language uh, uses the word worthy to communicate two word pictures that I think are really helpful. The first is from the world of commerce, and it had to do with balancing the scales in the marketplace when you, when you bought something. So picture the idea, if you've ever seen the old scales where they have a fulcrum right in the middle, and then on each, hanging on each side, they have a place for you to put the product you're purchasing and measure it against a standard weight, right? And, and the idea was to balance it out before you made the purchase. That's the idea. So when Paul says that our walk should be worthy, he's saying that your life should balance out with something. But, but what is that something? I made much in my introduction about our adoption as sons and daughters of God, and I do think that idea is resident in these three verses, but notice that that's not what Paul points to here. He points to our calling. Now, the idea of calling in the Bible, God calling people, is that He is inviting them to turn from going their own way, to turn back and return to Him and have re restored relationship to Him. That's the idea of our calling. And so, it should point us to thinking about the gospel uh, and being called into relationship uh, with God. Just as God called Israel in the Old Testament to live in covenant relationship with Him, so now in the New Covenant, God is calling all people, Gentiles and Jews, to live in personal relationship with Him. So conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling points us, points us back to God's invitation to us in the gospel. And I think that means two things for how we define this. First of all, walking in a manner worthy of our calling doesn't mean that we can somehow pay back God on the back end for the gift of salvation that He gave us uh, by His grace originally. That's not the idea. What it means here is that on one side of the scale are the privileges of my calling, His invitation and what I've received through Christ. So, on one side of the scale are my privileges, and on the other side of the scale is my conduct. It, my conduct. All right, fine, I'll be honest. My conduct. All right? So, it's my conduct. And what I'm trying to do is to work so that my conduct matches the privileges I've been given, right? With great privileges comes great 
responsibility. And so I'm trying to responsibly live in such a way that I start doing better living up to the privileges I've received through Christ. And that's not meant to discourage us. That's meant to give us a good goal to aim at. And there's grace to help us achieve that. The other picture that this word worthy uh, was used of is it was used in the world of clothing, of fashion. It was used of colors and uh, styles of clothing that matched instead of clashing. Now, I will confess to you that when I I put on clothes that clash, I'm not always aware of it. And so, God has graciously in His kindness given Brooke to be a helpmate for me so that when I I stand up here, I I match, I'm not clashing. And uh, I was painfully reminded of how fashion-challenged I am Uh, Just this last fall, uh, I got to teach a a seminary class on pastoral counseling, and uh, when I was at the master's seminary as a student, the pastoral counseling class taught by Stuart Scott was my favorite favorite class in all of seminary. It was so practical. And uh, a friend of mine who heard that I was going to be teaching this, he said, hey, you know, when Stuart Scott taught that class, all those videos are on YouTube. They have old videos they've put on YouTube that you can watch. And so I went and investigated, and sure enough, I found Stuart Scott and, and those pastoral counseling classes from the seminary. I thought, well, this will be helpful for me. I'll, I'll go back and I'll review the things he taught me that then I can take and teach uh, seminarians now. And in the end, what transpired was I was teaching same ideas, but I was teaching from a very different set of notes. And so watching his videos didn't, didn't help me so much. But one of the things that transpired when I turned on the first video is that I had forgotten I had forgotten that the semester I took his class, the seminary filmed it, and every now and then the cameraman panned across the class, and sure enough, there I was wearing a shirt and tie and pants that didn't match. And I was married. I was married at the time. And so he's like, well, how how could Brooke have let you walk out of the house looking like that? And the answer is, I got up at 5.30 a.m. to go to school, and, and she was still asleep. And on more than one occasion, I remember coming home from seminary in the late afternoon or early evening and, and seeing Brooke, and the way she greeted me was, you wore that? <laughs> and so, watching these Stuart Scott videos, it was supposed to be this wonderful you know, joyous stroll down memory lane that would be edifying to me, and I was distracted because they kept showing me clashing. So, here's the thing. That same thing with, you know, and all of us, we've done this at some point, where you realize either at the social event or after the fact, you realize, oh my goodness, I was clashing the whole time, and, you know, you feel embarrassed. That That same thing can happen in our spiritual lives. We can clothe ourselves with words and actions that don't match our high calling and our new position in Christ. Paul says, in essence then, I implore you to put on the clothing of conduct that matches your privileged status as a son or daughter of God. Paul doesn't want the doctrine we say we believe in and the way we live to clash. He he doesn't want that. And so, does your manner of living balance with the privileges you've been given as a son or daughter of God? Does your conduct match the high calling you've been given as an ambassador to Christ? That's the unavoidable question of Ephesians 4.1. But there's another question that I want to draw your attention to 
main point of this sermon, and it's this. What specifically does it look like to live in a manner worthy of our calling? What, 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 what do I do? Do, do, I just, do I go to church and then serve and give money so that I'm helping build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in my generation? Uh, do I carve out time in my calendar to get alone with God and study His Word uh, for myself and, then, and pray and then try and take what I've learned in my personal private Bible study and try to live that out with other people? So, is it an issue of piety? Is it an issue of service in the church? Like, what, what, what do I do, Paul? Just tell me what to do. Uh, well, there is an answer to that question. Uh, as I said before, Ephesians 4.1 is a topic sentence for the rest of chapters 4 through 6, and so uh, when we give all the members of grace your blue book essay exam at the end of spring semester, uh, and I ask this question as pastor, one of, the, one of the answers you can give in your blue book is, well, the rest of chapters 4 through 6 answer what it means specifically to live in a manner worthy. That's a valid answer to the question. But there's also another answer, and it's this. In verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us a shorthand answer to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and that leads to me sharing a deep concern with you that I had sort of privately prepping this sermon. As I was preparing for this message, I came across more than one Bible commentator and more than one pastor who I like. I, I listen to how other pastors preach passages. And I came across more than one commentator, more than one pastor, who stopped at the end of chapter 4, verse 1, and then went into this long explanation, a, a passionate explanation, either of what they think this can't mean, or, you know, it can't mean legalism, or what they think it does mean. And I admit, I myself, I made the same mistake as I was preparing to preach through Ephesians a couple years ago, as I was just reading the book to familiarize myself with it, uh, in my notes as I was reading, I had a little journal. And when I got to chapter 4, verse 1, I wrote in the margins, you know, what am I going to say to the people of Grace Fellowship about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What cross-reference in the New Testament am I going to go to that explains in detail how we live up to our calling? What, uh, what portion of our systematic theology on sanctification am I going to instruct them with on the Sunday when I get to this verse? And the problem with all of that thinking is that there's no period at the end of verse uh, 1. There's a comma. We're supposed to keep reading. If you just keep on reading, Paul tells you exactly what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's look at it, at it again. I'll start in verse 1 because it, it makes the sentence make more sense. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The answer to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is in the text. Paul tells us exactly what it is, verses 2 through 3. Not only do we not have to stop reading at the end of verse 1, we shouldn't stop reading at the end of verse 1. Uh, we shouldn't try to just figure this out on our own. We should keep reading. In the movie Finding Nemo, uh, there's a fish named Dory uh, who helps Marlin in his hour of crisis, and she has a motto, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Well, when we come to interpreting the Bible and we're having difficulties, our, one of our mottos needs to be, 
just keep reading, just keep read, just keep reading, just keep reading, and the apostle will tell you what it means. What he says in the rest of the book will shed light on this thing that seems fuzzy earlier on in the letter. Just keep reading. And if we keep reading past verse 1, we find that Paul gives us shorthand for what it means to walk worthy of our calling. And notice, first of all, that this list is a list of virtues that's more about being than doing. It's more about having the right attitudes of the heart than doing a, a particular external action. And these attitudes are attitudes that if you go back and you relate them, you think about the gospel, they actually ma- it actually makes perfect sense that the effect of the gospel in our lives would naturally lead to us having these virtues. The first one is humility. Uh, the opposite of humility, of course, is pride. And proud people hurt other people. Proud people think that they've arrived, and they have no problems condemning people who they think haven't arrived. Self-righteous people condemn others who they think haven't achieved their level of righteousness, the, the level of righteousness they've been deluded, I would add, into thinking that they, they have. Pride, you guys know this from experience, pride never enhances relationships. But when the gospel makes you aware of how rebellious and self-centered and egotistical and evil you've been, it humbles you. Uh, the, the gospel has this way of humbling you so that you can sincerely say, along with the, the Apostle Paul, truly I am the chief of sinners because even though I've been able to keep a lid on some of my words and some of my actions, my own secret desires and imaginations and inclinations and motives condemn me. Um, the gospel of our Lord Jesus always humbles people. And humility makes for people who also extend gentleness to others. Gentleness means that the thing I'm working on doesn't get damaged in the process. Uh, when we bought our house, uh, there was a problem with the uh, exhaust for our dryer. There was a problem with the, the dryer vent. Uh, two problems. The first problem was that uh, the exhaust for the dryer had to travel 21 feet through three right angles and up into the attic before it exited the house. So yeah, that's kind of a long distance. But then also, it took me eight years to discover this, uh, the ductwork got pinched to half the normal size uh, because it got threaded up in between a, a, a rafter and the HVA, uh, HV, AC, yeah, did I get that right? The HVAC. It got threaded between the HVAC, and the HVAC, the way they installed it, it pinched it to only half the size, uh, and, uh, and so this all needed to be fixed. And so I set about to try and fix it. I'm not very handy, but I set about to try and fix it myself. I went to Lowe's. I bought the aluminum piping, right, to, to do it myself. And when I got to the point where it, the ductwork was pinched and the piping wouldn't fit, eventually I gave up in frustration and anger. And as I was, after I had given up, as I was walking away from the, the, the project in frustration and anger, uh, there's a, a little two-by-four you have to walk across up in our attic. And as I was walking away in my anger, I was not careful about where I was stepping, and I stepped through the roof of the upper story of our house. So here's the thing. My intention to try and fix it was a good intention but I ended up damaging the very part of the house I was trying to work on. Uh, you have been called to represent Christ 
and the message of the gospel to others, and that calling will sometimes uh, call you to help other Christians, or maybe spouse, your children, family members, friends, take the speck out of their own eye for their benefit. But if you're not gentle about it, you'll hurt them in the process. You'll break the very thing that you intend to fix. People who are aware of how much they've been forgiven through Christ, they've been humbled. And they also, because they're humble, they can be gentle with others who struggle. And they also can be, through God's grace, patience. Uh, Patience is willing to wait. Patience doesn't demand that the other person change immediately. Uh, Patience, I think, should be averse to giving ultimatums. Uh, It's willing to stick in there and love the other person even when change seems slow. And uh, for my part, I actually think uh, patience is one of the most underrated attributes or perfections. We learned that from Dr. Ryrie, right? Uh, Patience is one of the least appreciated perfections of God. Uh, It's amazing to me that He doesn't just get irritated with me and walk away. His love has an inexhaustible patience to it. He works with Abraham to sanctify Abraham over a a span of decades. Uh, He works with Israel over a span of centuries, even though they're wayward. Uh, God's love has an inexhaustible patience to it. And uh, as His sons and daughters, we're called to grow in patience as well. Uh, Paul also exhorts the Ephesian church uh, to show tolerance for one another in love. Now, this Greek word for tolerance Paul uses, he's using it a little bit differently than we use the word tolerance uh, in American uh, culture. The idea here is bearing with or bearing up under the load of being with someone who is difficult. You don't have to bear up with people who are easy. The idea in Scripture of bearing up with others or bearing with others is that there's trial, there's difficulty, there's differences. The relationship isn't the way you want it to be. Uh, It means staying in relationship when things aren't where you'd like them in that relationship. And the motive Paul emphasizes behind why we should bear up with others who are difficult is love. It's part of loving, which means that gives us another facet to our understanding of the dimension of love. One of the ways love expresses itself, one of the ways biblical agape love expresses itself is by being willing to love others even when they're being difficult and unlovable. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling also means being diligent to preserve unity where possible. Now, let's be balanced about this. We can't sacrifice truth on an altar to unity. We can't unite ourselves with false gospels. We can't be united with worldliness on the one hand. But on the other hand, the bias of Christians within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be for unity wherever possible. Where it's possible, where it's practical, we should desire unity. And that means we need to be diligent about resolving conflicts and not letting them fester. It means exercising good judgment about which arguments are important, and they are definitely worth having, not avoiding. And then on the other hand, which arguments are worth, uh, they're on peripheral, peripheral issues, and they're not worth discussing unless someone else brings them up, right? I'm not going to bring it up. I, I don't think this is going to be helpful. We already have enough other stuff we're trying to uh, resolve right now. 
but if someone else brings it up, I'm willing to talk about it. That all takes judgment. That takes wisdom. But I think that's part of this idea of being diligent to preserve unity within the church. And, and so, when we talk about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, it's gonna, it has to mean uh, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerating others in love, and having an eye for unity in our local church. Now, what Paul wrote was written for the Ephesian church originally, and particularly in, their con- in the context of their local church, but I think he also means these commands to be taken outside of the church into our relationships. And so, I want to do something uh, that I, I don't remember the last time I've done it from the pulpit. Uh, I want to do something I don't normally do. I want to take these and apply these specifically to one arena of life. I want to apply it to parenting, and particularly to parenting adult children. And uh, when we go through chapters four through six, I want to try to be very practical, right? Last year was very theological in chapters one through three. I want to make sure we're very practical as we go through chapters four through six. And one of the practical things I want to do as a pastor, I want to try and resource you. And so, first of all, uh, if you are the parent of an adult child who has rejected the gospel, uh, I want to recommend to you Stuart Scott's book, Wayward Children, Finding Peace, Keeping Hope. We have three copies out in the foyer. Um, This is an excellent, excellent book on parenting adult children who are wayward. Uh, Stuart Scott and his wife have been doing so for a number of decades themselves, and uh, it's, you'll notice it's a thin book, and that's because it's not didactic. It's not beginning, middle, and end. It's a 31-day devotional, and each devotional is just two pages. Starts with Scripture, one paragraph explanation, then applied to what you're facing as a parent. And in the end, he has some great, uh, he has some great appendices. One is about other books from Christian authors about dealing with adult children, and that isn't just a bibliography. He explains what each, he gives you a paragraph description of each book so you can figure out which ones you might be interested in for further reading. He gives uh, a whole appendice on moving from sinful responses to righteous responses that comes out of his own struggle. Uh, Another one from moving from pride to humility that, again, comes out of his own struggles as an adult. And uh, so, it's a very, very practical book. Uh, It's the best one I've found for helping parents with adult children, and I commend it to you. But now, let's apply the Apostle Paul's words to those of us who are parents. One of the best ways that you can model the gospel for your children is through confession and repentance. It, that defines what it means to be a Christian. Christians are repenters. We, we, the whole point is we confess we were going our own way, and now we've turned back to Christ. And so, uh, being a Christian as a parent includes the idea, if you're going to parent in a Christian way, it would have to include that we admit when we're wrong. And if what we did that was wrong was more than just an error in judgment, it was more than just a mistake, it was actually sin, then we have to confess that for what it is and repent. And, and if it was committed against another person, we don't just ask God for forgiveness, we ask that person for forgiveness. Have your children ever seen you admit that you're wrong about anything? Like, have you admitted you're wrong about anything to them? Have, they, have you ever asked them for your forgiveness when you've wronged them in a way that clearly was sinful. Uh, That takes humility, but that's what humility does. Uh, And this should start when the children are young in the home, but it should continue as well when they're adults. 
And here's the rub with children becoming adults, right? Uh, according to Scripture, when your child moves out of your house as an adult, let's imagine for the sake of argument they get married and they have children, the Bible is clear that they have established a new sphere of authority. And what that means is you're no longer in authority over them. Your role has to transition to more of counselor and supporter. And here's the rub. Though you'll never stop being their parent, and though they're the ones that Scripture commands to give you honor, even though that's, the, uh, that's all true, that's in the mix, at the same time, your relationship has to transition to more of a peer relationship. But one of the difficulties about that peer relationship, let's say, for example, that you're in your 50s and they're in their 20s, one of the difficulties with that peer relationship is this, that in a very objective way, you are wiser than them. You, you've seen more of life than them. And so you just, uh, you, you know more uh, about them. You've had more life experiences. And so you're going to have to fight the temptation to constantly correct them and constantly give them unsolicited advice. Uh, and the reason I say that is this. You know this for yourself as an adult. You wouldn't stay in a friendship with a, a fellow adult where it became clear to you that they thought all their opinions were right uh, they had all the right opinions, and you had none, and your job is just to listen. You wouldn't stay in that friendship. Well, your adult children don't want that either, and so even though you're not intending to be a condemning presence, a judgmental, you, you, you don't want to be a judgmental presence in their life, if all you do is correct, 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 and give unsolicited advice, that's how it's going to start to feel to them. So you have to be sparing in the unsolicited advice you give. And you also have to understand ahead of time, and this is where the pain comes in, uh, there are going to be times when they don't listen to your wise counsel that would have saved them from a world of trouble. And the reason why is because they have to learn the hard way, right? They can't learn it the easy way. They got to learn it the hard way. And I know that's painful for you, but if you can stay, take a step back and divorce yourself from the emotion for a moment and be clear-headed, you have to admit that this tendency of them in their 20s and 30s to be independent and have to learn the hard way and not listen to counsel, that in that sense, we do have to say of that phenomena, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. What, what did you do to your parents when you were in your 20s? You didn't always listen. There were some lessons you had to learn the hard way. If anything, some of this might be ironic retribution for what you put your parents through, right? There might be some poetic justice to what you put your own mom and dad through in what your adult children are doing. And so what, this, what all of this means is that as a parent of an adult child, you have to humble yourself. You have to have more realistic expectations. You have to fight the temptation to constantly correct them because in the long run, it'll start to feel judgmental to them, even though that's, that's, not, that's not what you're trying to do. And the fact is, you have to come to some realizations. Like, there are some things they just have to learn the hard way. And not only that, this is the one that drives me nuts. There's some things that they have to learn from other people, even though you told them a hundred times, and they're going to give that other person the credit for helping them see the light, even though you told them that for years. It, and, and in that moment, you have to say, look, the main point is not that I get credit. The main point is that they arrived where they need to be. This is what I was praying for, right? But it, all that takes humility. You have to humble yourself as the parent of an adult child. And you also have to be gentle with them if you're going to help them. Uh, when Brooke and I lived in Los Angeles, 
uh, in the apartment complex we lived in, if it, it was surrounded by a housing community. If you went out into the housing community, you didn't have to walk very far to see houses that were working. There, people were constantly renovating old houses in the section of housing uh, in the part of the community that, that we lived in. And you could tell whether they were renovating that old house uh, in terms of updating it or whether a developer had bought the house and was going to tear it down and then reconfigure the property and build something new on it, you could tell by the size of tools that were in front of the house. If you looked in the driveway and you saw small power tools, they were restoring it. They were updating it. Uh, they were renovating it. If you walked by the house and you saw a wrecking ball, they were tearing that baby down. And so, parent, uh, father, mother, you can't have wrecking ball responses to the sins and failures of your adult children uh, because that will get in the way of the lessons they need to learn. If you lack gentleness, your child will get hurt in the process and they won't learn what they need to learn. Uh, you also have to be patient with your children. You can't expect old heads on young shoulders. You can't expect children who've rejected Christ to live like Christians. You have to adjust your parental expectations. Uh, your children struggle with sin, not just, and, and to be biblically correct, we should say this. Your children, it's not that they struggle with sin like you did when you were their age, even, even though you did struggle with sin when you were their age. Uh, we need to say biblically to help us with humility, your children struggle with sin like you still do even now. And so, you've got to be patient with them and the process of their own sanctification. And you also are going to have to bear up with them. You have to bear up with the wayward ones in love. You don't have to bear up with the compliant ones. You don't have to bear up with the ones who are interested in all the same things you are and have your same values. It, 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 it's just, that's not the struggle. The bearing up happens with the ones who are difficult and wayward. Uh, you have to bear up with the children who don't share your values. You have to bear up with the adult children who aren't parenting your grandchildren the way that they should objectively be parented. But those wayward ones still need your loving presence in their lives because you bring the light of the gospel to them. You're a gospel presence in their lives. Now, I will confess to you here in closing, clo uh, excuse me, in closing, I will make a public confession. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling within the context of parenting is very difficult. I am not by nature a humble person. I have a hard time admitting when I've made a mistake, let alone admitting when I've sinned. Uh, Brooke and the kids can tell you I am not always gentle like I, like I should be. Um, patience does not come naturally to me. Even when a child does what I've asked them to do without any complaining, they're obeying. I still want the job done yesterday, and I can lean on them in a way that provokes them to anger because I get all task-oriented. I'm not a very patient person, and I don't do well bearing up in relationships over the long haul when things get difficult. I might make a good start of it, but somewhere in the middle, I just want to check out and be done with the difficulty. But the reason I preach these things to you and to myself is because we know that this is the path that leads to life. This is the path that leads to healthy family, healthy parenting, to pleasing our Lord, and to living up to the privileges we have through Christ.
And so adult parents don't get, I'm sorry, parents of adult children don't give up on your children. Bear up with them. Uh, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. You're, you've always been actually an ambassador for Christ's sake to them. And yes, you're the ambassador that raised them, saw that they were educated, and spent a lot of money on them they're never going to thank you for. Yes, that's all true, but you're still an ambassador of Christ to them. Be a good example to them of what it means to follow Christ, even if they're not interested in following Christ. Still be a presence in their life that influences them towards Christ. Don't grow weary in well-doing by continuing to pray for them. Be patient with them. Be gentle with them. Bear up with them in love. Let's pray.